you know, there, there's lots of directions that Peter could have taken those sermons. He could have said, you know, he could have focused on what they have in common instead of what they have. You know, he, there's way, ways he could have avoided that, but he goes right directly at the pressing sin that they all... He could all, have just told them they were killing it. Yeah, they could, he's, you're just killing it, guys. <laughs> you did a great job. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church in Hilton Head, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Great, Nick. Thanks. Honestly, I'm still shaken. I had a dentist appointment this morning, and I always walk out of those even though I didn't have anything wrong. I don't even have any cavities. I feel like as though I've been in a physical fight, like I'm... Utterly destabilized by having someone's <laughs> hands in my mouth. You should get nitrous. Discover <laughs> nitrous like the that's that's the key. They just knock like, you out all of a sudden. No, gas? it's like it's a gas. It's it's I know it's hard to is. explain. I mean, I'm never I never uh, was was tempted by the. You're just in a euphoria um, the whole time. Well, you find yourself you're sitting there and you're saying like, well, this isn't really doing anything, and then you and then you realize you're like talking a little more freely about stuff than you probably should, and so and it was a little awkward because I, if you're listening, beloved listeners, my former church it was a, a parishioner of mine that's our dentist, and so mm. I was I was actually I never I could never do that. I was half worried. I was like, I hope I don't say anything that I'm like <laughs> going to be regret here, but I, but that does lessen the anxiety for yeah. sure. Um, mm. So I would highly recommend it. My wife, as some will know, is an optometrist, and it's all I can do to handle her, even checking my eyes. So the idea of a personal friend with their hands in my mouth is just way beyond the pale to me. Mm. Well, that's that's just a weird something about you, Nick. Nah. <laughs> I did get to watch a little bit of HGTV, which is still the ninth circle of hell, but you know, there's, <laughs> there's still flipping houses out there. <laughs> well, guys, even as we record this on Wednesday, January 18th, the College and House of Bishops of the Church of England are meeting in London to confirm the outcomes of the living in love and faith discernment process. Now, that is basically the decision whether or not to change canon law to allow same-sex marriage in the church. And those results are supposedly going to be made public on Friday, the same day we publish this podcast. So since we can't technically talk about those outcomes specifically, since they're not technically public yet, although we think we know which way they're going, we can talk about the ideas behind them crystallized recently in an open letter of January 9th that... Bishop John Wigorn of the Diocese of Worcester wrote to his people. Now, we'll post a link to the letter on the episode page, but you can find it online. Just try open letter Diocese Worcester, which, of course, is W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. Worcester. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Guys, guys, you read this letter in which he says many things, but it boils down to the fact the old saw that having thought long and hard about it, he's changed his mind and is now in favor of allowing same-sex marriage in the Church of England. There's lots of things we could talk about. I have some notes here. It's not surprising to any of us, but what jumped out at you from this letter? I mean, I kind of wish we could go. It's a long letter. I wish we could go through it paragraph by paragraph because they're they're just there's just so yeah so much so there's much nothing stopping you, Mac. Start. Uh, well, well uh, I've got <laughs> well I've, time might be stopping. <laughs> I, I've got five or six headers here of those general things that he brings up and sloughs off that we need to talk yeah. about. I mean, I think I think the the way he sets up the letter, the thing that struck out, stuck out to me most is the, is the way he sets up the letter with with uh, going back to Charles Gore. 
and rethinking scripture in light of science, and it's okay to to decide that traditional readings are wrong now that we know so much more. Um, and then it kind of that, that, that's punctuated, or I guess the the, the punchline of that line of argument comes um, in in the paragraph where he he says that uh, that now we know you know you use. I, I, I suggest that something similar to Gore's time is happening now. Until recently, it was thought that, thought by many, that the expression of homosexuality was simply a perverse lifestyle choice. Though, as yet, there is no scientific certainty about what factors determine sexual sexual orientation. There is a general consensus that it's not a choice. Okay, so um, from there, then he moves to okay. Since it's not a choice, we have to we have to um, we have to rethink our stance on it, which I think is a. And I've said, I've said this from the beginning, beginning of the debate. That's a that's a straight down the line Pelagian move. Um, you only do that if you assume that the condition of human of the human person is is like it as it was in the garden um, before the fall. So that what you find in the human person is therefore can be traced to creation. Let's say because the, the reality is. Because we are fallen, and that and the, and the fallenness of our nature has has sunk down to the roots of our being, uh, that you might be born with something or oriented towards something, even if it's not a choice that you're making, that doesn't necessarily mean that that thing is good. That's, that's right. That's that's, that's right. that that the only way you can come to that conclusion is if you believe yeah, I mean, that our, our fall isn't there, right? Our, our fallen hearts, you know, our sin nature uh, manifested through our fallen hearts uh, are, are the very places from which <clears throat> evil comes. I mean, that's from Jesus himself. You know, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, lust, licentiousness, jealousy, anger, wrath, malice. Like this is what makes you unclean. And so none of those are choices. That's right. The idea that something that that you are born with, i.e., a sin nature that manifests in in this particular way into sexual deviancy, is um, unchosen, is almost an apologetic for the biblical anthropology. I mean, it's over against, um, or certainly gospel anthropology, over against, as you rightly pointed out, Matt, a, a Pelagian um, understanding, uh, because because we're confessing it precisely the point of our need the helplessness we have before these unchosen sinful lusts of the flesh eyes and pride of life i mean that's what that's that's part of the message and it's not surprising that a church of england bishop would have uh, made such a theological error <laughs> you know having having rejected sort of um, or many of them having rejected you know historic christianity a long time ago in any sort of uh, understandable way particularly when we're related to sin and uh, judgment heaven and hell and brokenness and redemption yeah, I mean, I think uh, you. I think you know, the, no, the bishop doesn't go here, but I think this is why we need to be every even more carefully attuned to the use of the imago dei, the the image of God by people, because many times just the declaration that we're made in the image of God serves as a way of justifying behaviors, yeah. justifying and. And that's that. That is also a Pelagian move because yes, we're made in the image of God, but that image is ruined. It's twisted. It's destroyed. So, um, it's I've shattered. Seen, yeah, it's shattered. I've seen it over and over again. People on on Twitter, especially using that that language of of, of made in God's image to justify simple behavior. And 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 so this same kind of move the bishop's making here. But um, he doesn't use that language. But it, it should pay. We should pay attention to it because I think that's how it's being used, and it's going to be increasingly used in the in the gay. LGBTQ debate. So far, it's only being used in terms of things that can be connected to someone's identity. 
but it doesn't seem to make any logical sense to stop there. If you are going to say that whatever you do because of who you are can be founded and therefore Mm -hmm. excused based on the Imago Dei, then certainly it doesn't make any sense why you wouldn't then say, oh, this thing that I stole from the store, I'm I'm made in the image of God. Why shouldn't I be able to do that? (laughs) Right. One of the other things that jumped up to me is something that we've we sort of skirted around talking about before when we've talked about ordination vows and the like, even here in the ACNA, which is the practice of affirming a church doctrine while disagreeing with it personally. And in this letter, he at least implies strongly, if not states outright, that he he disagreed with the policies of the Church of England as they're stated, but would have affirmed them. He says he would never have participated in the ordination of a woman, for instance, before the church allowed it. He would never have participated in a same-sex union before the church allowed it. But it sounds like he's been working toward those innovations the whole time. And I wonder about faithfulness to ordination vows. At what point, if one disbelieves a doctrine of the church, is one bound to leave that church? And as you think about your answers to that question, think about things like the Reformation. How does a disagreement with the church in which you are ordained need to form your interaction with it? Yeah, I mean, I think he's kind of confusing. He's kind of confusing maybe the way you might act in a in a republic or in a, in a nation as a as a as a citizen in engaging with the laws or policies of the nation with. Uh, confusing that kind of category with the category of church, where which is where we we are bound by revealed doctrines that come from God. So our church, let's use by our diocese for an example. Um, the Church of the Diocese of the Living Word. Everybody has to subscribe to Thirty Nine Articles. If you decide that you no longer uh, can affirm them. But you were to say to our bishop, "Oh, well, I'm still going to go ahead and you know." Uh, give them lip service, but I think they're all wrong, and I think we should return to Rome. The bishop would kindly invite you to, you know, go to Rome <laughs> to, to leave because because we're we're the whole point of having a confession and having a a stated way that a given church understands the scriptures is so that those who are professing to be professing those um, professing members of those of that church and especially professing clergy of that church would be upholding them fully, both in their actions and in their words and thoughts. And when they can't, I think it, it, it is it shows a deep lack of integrity uh, to stay in and try and change the thing. You need to just go, go somewhere else, start your own church, start your own sect, start your own cult mm-hmm. or whatever. But don't but don't stay don't stay in in the church and 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 lobby for a change because while you're doing that, the whole point of having these confessions is is, is so that you, it's presenting a lie. Like you 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 don't uh, you're professing a professing leader in the church in that church, quote unquote, upholding those confessions while you're yet not upholding it. It's 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 a it. it the problem is integrity within one person, which can't. Which the doesn't. problem is the distinction between what you're doing publicly and believing privately. Whereas someone like. Martin Luther, who is an ordained Roman Catholic priest, does have a problem with his church, but starts speaking about it and writing about it publicly and tries to reform the church, but publicly and openly rather than working against it surreptitiously. 
I think that is I think that is the distinction that we need to hold on to because you want um, you know you want some of the convictions to be tested and tried and we see the you know simple reformanda the church is always reforming you know as the statement goes um, but I think the difficulty lies in when the people rise to the level of bishop as we've pointed out that there is a an acceptance that you would you would imagine you would have to um, you would have to believe wholeheartedly or perhaps you could stay like a, a rogue cleric or something you know who's just sort of a dissident who kept complaining to who anyone would listen and you might be disciplined by your bishop or not but but to to assume the episcopacy and sort of speak for the for the church you know seems disingenuous um at the least and i think another of the difficulties are is that um you know it's like a confusion confusion of article 6 and article 20 you know on the authority of scripture and on the authority of the church because there's a lot of things within the church that we could disagree on and we could fight about even um best practices you know vestiture uh, candles musicianship like all sorts of things that you can legitimately agree to disagree but when it comes to these the, the argument has been and will continue to be when it comes to these essentialist sort of fundamental ideas of of humanity you know men and women um and or husband and wife and then you're talking about and then what the bible says about these things then even questions of like for instance women in the episcopacy become not simply a question of article 20 about the church but a question of the authority of scripture itself for for many down through history of course uh for sure and so I think that's the difficulty we're in is that there are people who are happy to compartmentalize certain disagreements as um, in sort of Article 20, for lack of a better word, uh, compartment saying, well, this is this is essentially like disagreeing about whether or not you should have an organ or a guitar, whereas people say, well, you know, we're happy to disagree about that. But what you by your action here, you have redefined. Um, not only the entire understanding of um, of marriage in this particular case, and then when he references women to the episcopacy, the relationship between men and women in general, specific in marriage, but also the understanding of Christianity and the Bible as a whole. And so we have therefore we are we're in a different religion at this point. I mean that's that's the pushback to him about whether or not you could advocate for this change and still be a good churchman, because what he's actually advocating for, um, given the the gravity of the of the subject matter, is not simply a change in doctrine, but an actual change in in the entire understanding of of Christian world, for lack of a better word including well, the authority of scripture yeah and the Archbishop, archbishop of canterbury himself set the stage for that i mean he's quote uh, the bishop um wigern wigern is it john wigern? that's how you spell it i'm not sure how to pronounce it okay uh, quotes the archbishop toward the very end of his pay of his letter and and uh, speaking of those who affirm same-sex marriages and relationships the archbishop said uh, they have not arrived lightly at their ideas that tradi the traditional teaching needs to change. They are not <laughs> careless about scripture. They do not reject Christ, but they have come to a different view on sexuality right. after long prayer, deep study, and reflection on understand on understandings of human of, of right. nature. Right. So that that's exactly what you're saying, JD. This is yeah. Well, I've had someone. I've Did that had really a get a standing me, ovation? That seems like it's such milk toast oratory. Even even <laughs> if you believed it, you wouldn't stand up and applaud. It definitely got some uh, some sort of nervous, awkward laughter, <laughs> yeah, right. which is the hauling card of a liberal diocesan <laughs> meeting. Right. Like everything is sort of funny, even though no one says any jokes. That's uh, <laughs> you know, you know. Tell me you're you're at an Episcopal uh, clergy convention without telling me you're at one. It's like dude, nobody said anything funny, yet everyone's sort of laughing a little bit a little, yeah. a little embarrassed to be there um 
you know, if they're honest. Uh, but no, I think it's, it's you know, th- I've had a conversation directly with a bishop in public, in fact, where he said, you know, he was saying that he um, he and I do uh, both believe in the authority, supreme authority of Scripture. We just understand that authority in different ways. And that, that was, you know, met with great applause, or at least, you know, to a certain um, segment of the hearers. And I, um, and I remember saying, well, you know, at some point, then if that's the persistent witness uh, refrain, well, then we are we are going to simply have two things, two distinct things that call themselves Christian, but they're not going to be in right. any way related. And that's what we're starting to see. That actually brings up the next thing that jumped out to me from this letter. I have a, a, a sentence here that I want to read to you guys. I'm sure it jumped out to you, too. He says, my understanding of Anglican polity is that we are bound by the scriptures interpreted within the living tradition of the church through the application <laughs> of reason and experience. The three-legged stool. Reason, right. reason and experience right. <laughs> have caused me to come to the scriptures anew and reassess my reading of them. Scientific insight, he claims, is part of that experience. Yes, the, the three-legged stool attributed to Richard Hooker wrongly, um, that these these th- three things are allegedly holding up the church in in equal parts, but even he says within the context of the sentence that reason and experience are above scripture. They caused him to come to the scriptures anew and reassess my reading of them. Not only does Hooker and others not call them equal, he explicitly says that scripture is our sole authority. Right. And and he wasn't talking about, as, as far as uh, interpreting within the bounds of, of tradition, he wasn't talking about within the living tradition of the church, which is how it's, a, which is an interesting phrase, mm. which I think, uh, I'll read, let me read the whole quote again from the letter. My understanding of Anglican polity is that we are bound by the scriptures interpreted within the living tradition of the church through the application of reason and experience. Uh, it, Hooker didn't even put experience in there, I don't think. No, right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that was Wesley. Wesley. Yeah, Wesley yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a Wesley and innovation, I think. Um, so the living tradition. I, I bet I, that seems to operate in this sentence much like you know the, we have a living constitution and document. Yeah, so for we, sure. We can, we can change the whole thing. So he's trying to he tries to couch himself as is taking a traditional Anglican move and interpreting scriptures in a, in the way that uh, our our Anglican forefathers would have uh, would have affirmed. But he's he's actually making a pretty radical uh, move. Uh, toward this well, and this is experiential what, interpretation, and this is a part of what Charles Gore. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's you know, this is the quiet part out loud, as they say, you know, with his explicit um, appeal to him. I mean, he's he's essentially playing his entire hand, um, which is the direction that you know we beat them to in the Episcopal Church and the <laughs> Church of Canada. But it's the same, it's the same move. I mean, you know, you could quibble with some of the reactions to Gore's specific argumentations, but at the very least, you couldn't argue against his his methodology, which is precisely what this uh, this bishop is is um, well explicitly Im- employing, because he's saying, you know, the new light is caused us to reconsider all of these formerly held truths. And that's the, you know, what we've heard in other capacities referenced as the, um, you know, the wind of the spirit blows where it will, you know, so it blows down all of these old patriarchal, you know, homophobic norms and is blowing and is enlightening the new path of freedom and self-acceptance or however people would put it. And, you know, it's sort of heartbreaking for me because I think, uh, you know, I thought I, I was hoping that there was going to be a, 
I don't know, like a, a at least an institutional, the Church of England was going to remain institutionally conservative. Uh, and it seems to me that this, this is just the first foray into what um, will come more explicitly with the final report of the living love and faith. And I guess I was, uh, I don't know how much hope I had. It must not have been as much as I really thought because I was very unsurprised by this um, letter. Uh, it just... Um, it's it's going to be sad to watch what happens to them or what happened to us uh, happen to them. It's just it, in, in, in the, some of the uh, reasoning of the people who are kind of lobbying the church to make this change, especially the politicians, uh, the PMs, uh, parliament, members of parliament, um, MPs, sorry, get it mixed up, uh, trying to get them to uh, to ch- make this change because, you know, they're, they're a national church, they're, they're, they're a state church, and, and they've got to reflect what the people of the state believe but you know we see how that we've seen how that goes i mean the, the minute the minute the church decides to uh to lose its distinctive character as as leaven in a in a, in a nation or as salt in uh, in the world then uh it, it doesn't grow i mean this is not gonna, this is not going to bring the people of england back to their churches this <laughs> so I mean, you're not going right. to see a flood the the, the flood the, the dam break and people flooding back into um, backing into the cathedrals, it's the same thing is going to happen in, in England that that has been happening over the last decades, but it, well, I think it will just accelerate like it has. Well, and the and the antipathy towards the 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 history, I mean, the shame of the past, all of it's going to, you know, nothing represents that's more than the two kind of divine institutions, at least arguably from a British perspective, being the monarchy and the church. You know, we see the same the same disestablishment um, argumentation on both sides. They're too expensive. They're outdated relics. They're you know harkening back to a to a colonial past that we'd rather not remember. And and so goes the argumentation. And we're going to watch that speed up. I think you're exactly right, Matt. Like once this happens and it becomes something that no one even wants to fight against because they finally have gotten with the times. Well, then the question is going to be like, well, how much are we paying for these people anyway? You know, right, what's right. what's actually you know how much um you know how much it cost to heat Ely Cathedral, by the way, you know, I mean, it's like, right. and, um, and, you know, if you put lay on top of that, the, the with, with some great exceptions in the church, I'm grateful to have found, but, but by and large, kind of an anemic, cynical, social piety that's, that's, that's covering um, unbelief, really, um, that has no sort of evangelistic fervor, uh, then you're, you're going to see more and more people just convert to Islam, if anything, you know, over there, because it, you've got these wandering, hopeless young people, particularly disaffected, uh, feral, feral men who mm-hmm. are um, being, you know, reaching the end of their own sort of self-deluded search for pleasure and, and falling into the hands of these people who are at least offering some divinely grounded, as the argumentation goes, uh, change of life, meaning of life. And then on, on the other side of that, you have them putting the, um, which I'm finally learning the name of, it's the Helter Skelter. It's not a, which is just means a a, a slide, right? The help, that's what the Rolling Stones sung about. But it's, remember the the, the, oh, the right. bishop, the bishop who thought that they could put like a giant bouncy house in the cathedral. That'll bring that, in. That's right. That's going to bring them in, you know, or they're going to have the, <laughs> remember when they had the the Dr. Sucharist in the Episcopal Church, I think, or was it uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. one bread, two one bread, 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 me bread, you bread. <laughs> it was like, oh, that. Now we've we've finally got the uh, the silver bullet that's going to bring all the kids. <laughs> I back. have myself presided at a Eucharist. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you shouldn't admit that. Well, I guess it's public that. absolution. Should, yeah. oh, man. <laughs> the Lord granting His ministers the right to perform absolution. I hereby pronounce. Oh Lord! Well, it's you know, and this is the um, 
this is just all the unseriousness of it all. I mean, it really is, um, you know, the, the, I mean, we've been in diocesan meetings and various church gatherings, not in the ACNA, I have to say, but in other capacities where, you know, it's just all a bunch of, it, it feels like a bunch of role-playing, like a 16th century LARPing event, you know, with, um, with like, you know, might've said like magicals jumping around, you know, and following <laughs> us, uh, with loots, but it really is, it's just so, seems so far removed from, from the sort of visceral need that actual Christian people have to hear, hear the long gospel, you know, all the time. Like the, if you walk into like a rural Baptist church or whatever, you know, you're more guaranteed there to hear something of the blood of Christ for sinners than you are in any, any cathedral in, in London. And, and I think that's what we're seeing. The, the fruit of that is in these type of argumentations from the bishop. Well, let's keep going through this letter. I was, again, unsurprised that he re-brought up one of the very oldest arguments for why we should be engaged in this rethinking work of what the church actually believes and stands for. He he describes some of the unfortunate alleged harsh language that same-sex attracted people have heard and been subjected to, and then writes... I have been forced to ask myself the question, how is the church's teaching good news for gay people created in God's image? There's the Imago Dei, Matt. I feel bound to say rather late in the day that it is not. That is, it is not good news. He's saying, because it has made these people feel bad, it's bad news. And that is a complete misunderstanding of how the law and the gospel work. Yeah, and what, what, so this is his his view of the good news must be, hey, you're all awesome. <laughs> you are yeah, right. whatever you're doing is wonderful, and and you don't need to change a thing. And and the gospel or Jesus, the law of God makes no demands on you, and um and you have uh you're just you're you're nailing it, you're killing it, and and keep going. <laughs> I mean, so, you're so, killing it. You're killing which, it. <laughs> which is exactly we all know what Jesus said to, yeah. when he when he came around. And no, he I mean also, it's a yeah, you're right. It's a complete. It's a complete uh, misunderstanding of what the gospel is, um, which has, and anytime you preach the gospel, you have to begin with uh, with a conviction of sin, with the law. Um, it's interesting. We're, we're we're preaching through Acts right now in our church, and there's the three sermons we've looked at so far: one before, one on Pentecost Day, one on after the healing of the of the lame man at the gate, beautiful gate, and the, the third in front of the Sanhedrin. And all three, Peter goes directly at them and says you put you put you crucified right. God's son and God raised him from the dead you know there, there's lots of directions that Peter could have taken those sermons he could have said you know he could have focused on what they have in common and said what they have you know he there's way ways he could have avoided that but he goes right directly at the pressing sin um that they he could all, have just told them they were killing it yeah, the kid, he's, you're just killing it, guys. You're doing a great job, um, but he, but he never, he, he goes right at the at the presenting sin, and that's, um, and that's what you do. I mean, that's what, and that, and that, that was good news for them because they were able. I mean, the people who who were able to hear that and confess it, he was also offering you know forgiveness, and that's the way it should be right now. Our 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 besetting sin in our culture is is sexual. Uh, sexual confusion and um, and and sexual perversion, and preachers who don't speak about it and right. bring bring the law to bear on that sin are are harming their people, and not allowing people who uh, should repent to hear the call to repent, and and not and therefore they're keeping the, they're shutting the gates of heaven in their faces. 
No, I totally agree with you, Matt. And I think that to limit it, um, well, we said this before, but I think that the the reason why I've thought about this for a long time, and I'm happy for reader, our listener to push back on this, but but <laughs> I, I've been convinced for a while that the reason why there's such a emphasis on on supporting uh, homosexuality from a both a secular, quote unquote secular, but also within a progressive Christian uh, mindset is because it's it is one of the um, historic and articulated prohibitions within the Bible. And if the Bible is unclear on this, well, then it's unclear on everything. And most of the people, percentage wise, despite what you would think from lifetime Christmas movies and advertisements do not have homosexual inclinations. Like most people have heterosexual inclinations and yet would be just as fallen, but for the grace of God in their, the lusts of their flesh, eyes and pride of life. And, and so therefore um, are liable to the same judgment, righteous judgment of God. Um, But if they can, can, if they can, if we can get the Bible to be unclear on this explicitly prohibited um, behavior. Well, then my um, sort of disordered, if not uh, behavior, you know, outside fornication outside of marriage or persistence of uh, lust or adultery within marriage or just simply fornication, period, can be at least theoretically absorbed in a less painful way. Now, of course, we see that God is not mocked, and that's just not true. I mean, the, you know, uh, there's no amount of me telling you you're not bearing the the, the wages of sin that's going to actually deliver you, but for the mercies of God in Christ. And so, you know, I think that's where this double bind, as we've said, between the law and the God, or the 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 supposed uh, freeing of yourself personally from the law actually further constricts the pain of it. Because if you remove, you know, for the people who say, well, I um. I, I grew up in a in a fundamentalist church, and the pastor was so mean, and all I heard was the law. And now I'm, you know, have extricated myself from that. I never stepped foot in one of those shame inducing churches again. If you've ever met people who say that, they are also still incredibly ashamed people, like incredibly anxious, like almost without exception, the people that I meet who say that are laboring deeply under a sense of um, inadequacy. They have, you know, they have um, anxieties, they have fears and guilt, and all the various things that do in fact come from living a life of unforgiven sin. And so I'm always um again and and that's 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 within and without the church and within the church we have means to to counsel and and obviously preach and absolve and so that's that's our means of of grace there. But I do think it's um to your point Matt that this is the argument of our day because it has become the um not only sexual deviancy which has always been a part of the fallen human reality but the 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 tying of it with our own our very standing before God like people are righteously standing saying you made me thus you know or I am this and therefore who are you God to say otherwise uh, if you do you must not be my God or a God I would worship and that's you know that's the ultimate end and affront of of unbelief and and well frankly blasphemy I mean that's that's where we that's where we have ended up and so for preachers and teachers who are not confronting that they are not only abdicating their responsibility but are in fact further constraining their sheep to lives of of unrepentant and unforgiven sin which is which is the most heartbreaking thing of all and of course the undergirding for all of this misunderstanding and apostasy and shutting of the, the heavenly hates is the misunderstanding and abuse of the scriptures themselves. I mean, this letter is rife with scripture taken out of context or twisted. Uh, what's your, what, as you read this letter, what are the most egregious examples of misused scripture to you? 
I have I have one that's somewhat in the middle. It, 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 it's it's one massive error that takes up two paragraphs um, <laughs> in, 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 in a letter. But it's interesting, before you, those two letters, you can tell before those two paragraphs, he he gives he, he says this. Let me just read this part to you before I talk about the the most egregious example because it's telling. It tells you kind of how he how this person treats the scriptures. He says the same is true of remarriage and divorcees, which Jesus specifically prohibits in Saint Mark's gospel, uh, thereby contradicting Moses. Hmm. No, Jesus didn't contradict Moses. He said Moses gave him an allowance that he's now taking away. That's not a contradiction. And then he goes on. Uh, there is what is referred to as the Matthean exception in Matthew chapter five, which further complicates the picture. Which teaching of Jesus do we follow? So you see what he's doing. He's setting up the Matthean exception as if, as if he's he, Mark and Matthew are in this kind of fight, and we, want to, we have to take one or the other. We can't. We, there's no way to harmonize these at all. They're completely contradictory. Right. And, and then he goes and he goes on, uh, and this is where the agreed, most egregious part I think is. Uh, some would say that whereas the scriptures are ambivalent about divorce and the role of women in leadership in the, uh, of the church, they are unequivocal of, in their condemnation of homosexuality. I don't think that's true. I do not think that the oft-quoted passages in Leviticus and Paul refer to anything comparable to the faithful monogamous same-sex relationships that some of which some of us are suggesting the church should celebrate. And then uh, this is the second part of this. And then he says, very next paragraph, the Bible never explains why same-sex sexual activity is condemned. Right. Um, mm. So so the, the first part of the error here is, is, is that he's assuming that the reason, and he goes on with this assumption later on throughout the letter, the reason the Bible forbids homosexual behavior is because the, the, the Bible writers had no idea how loving these relationships could be. And once That's they right. saw how loving they could be, oh man, they would just, they would just totally change their mind. That sets up for the Bible never explains why same-sex sexual activity is condemned. Here's where the error is. That's right. The reason why same-sex sexual uh, behavior and all other behavior outside of marriage is condemned is because, and we we said we've just beaten this drum over and over and over again in the Sanford podcast, <laughs> is, is because marriage is about the gospel. <laughs> because That's right. God created the male and female in order to give, to depict the gospel when the two come together in marriage that's that, right. that's 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 why jesus points back to the creation creation order when the when he's asked about divorce and says here's the model for all marriage but that's paul why, equates it to christ right. in the church in ephesians like paul I mean, it's a christ in the church. it's exactly so so that's why it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how loving the people are who are engaged in these kinds of relationships. I'm sure we can find people in homosexual relationships who are very nice, um, who do good things for each other. I'm sure we can find thruples that are full of of of, of joy and peace and all the all this stuff. Um, but but that doesn't matter because that's not the reason these relationships right. are forbidden. It's forbidden that's because right. they 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 obscure they obscure the gospel and. That's right. Um, they are ultimately harmful for everyone involved in it. Don't get me wrong. I don't think they are, but and I don't well, think there's really. Yeah, and this also this also gets exactly to the point of where you know it's the often rejected. He he a couple of paragraphs down, he talks about the quote unquote traditional goods of marriage. He says he says I've come to see that all the traditional quote goods of marriage except procreation can be enjoyed by those in a same sex marriage. Yeah, the latter in any event is bracketed out in common worship right as we all know because not all heterosexual marriages produce children. The other goods of marriage, the other two goods, which after Augustine are mutual love and support and sexual intimacy are available in a gay relationship. Well, you know, I would oh, I would I mean, again, just this discarding the actual sort of uh, 
well the 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 the, um, the realities of what that uh, <laughs> the the relationship yeah. looks like. Um, the the de- decoupling the sexual intimacy from procreation, um, or at least dismissing it because just some heterosexual couples can't uh, procreate, is such a, a flimsy and uh, yeah. r- non-Christian argument because. You know, fundamentally, part of our embodied natures as procreators with God is seen even in that procreative act as men and women. Like we're the only the only creatures who can create other other creatures who are made uniquely in the image of God. And so uh, that there is a brokenness and a fallenness to our sexual abilities in many cases. And I resemble this remark. I mean, Laz and I struggled for many, many years. That was not a point at which we said, well, this is clearly not a good that we um, should aspire to. It was simply a, a marker for us, at the very least, of a brokenness of the creation, this side of heaven. But that it was a com- constitutive component to marriage um, is an undeniably Christian idea. And so at the very base level, when a Christian person argues that you cannot have a Christian marriage that is not, at the very least, potentially procreative, which is, you know, to a man and a woman, even if they have all sorts of problems, there's at least the potential there um, in a way that there's an impossibility for two men or two women is is an, is, an, is a perfectly valid Christian argument, you know, and it's a, and it's an actually a serious one. I remember reading the the um, in, in Kentucky, we had a, 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 a verdict that actually got rolled up into the Obergefell decision from the Sixth Circuit of Appeals. And I was given uh, access to the reading when it was I mean, to the to the um, judgment when it was handed down. And the judge who's now deceased uh, made a comment about how people who argued to the about the defense of, of marriage along the grounds that it needed to be procreative um, were not people who were making serious arguments. And I remember as much as respect I had for this uh, particular judge in many ways. Um, that was that was a real misunderstanding. That was a real the real blind spot to to see something along those lines as a as a unserious argument. And I remember having discussions with his clerks about this, and I could tell by their reaction to me um, that it was it was as if they were just patting me on the head. I mean, we had some pretty frank discussions about the disagreements that we had, and it was as if they almost said, "Isn't that sweet? Like they're there, you know, uh, you know." Um, what a nice little vicar, you know, but, you you know, the, the adults here know what this is really about. Um, and you sort of backwards um, mystics or whatever don't. And I remember, um, well, that offended me, but, but also <laughs> but also having having at that point sort of an un this was probably what, eight, seven, eight years ago now, it, it has only been not only doubled, but probably tripled in my appreciation of the of the uh, the sort of unique and, and yoked nature of that procreative um, capability to what we would then bless as a Christian marriage. I mean, so much so that I've gotten, I've made people upset in my own family and discussions because I have said that if someone came to me and said that they were going to get a vasectomy before they got married in order to uh, prohibit any chance of having children, I would refuse the marriage like out with, without even without a second thought. And that's because it wouldn't have at the very least be the picture of what God had, had given the world to see a, a reconciled man and woman uh, united by the love of Christ, rebuilding that which the devil had attempted to tear down, and in part by bringing more um, of his creatures into the world to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I don't think we have much time left, do we? But I, I would like, uh, maybe before we cut off, I, I just I just wanted to read this one section of it because the, the, the incoherence of the biblical argument is just astounding to me. That it is, it is being made by... Uh, by a bishop, 
who's apparently who, who we would hope has been educated in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation. But he he writes uh, the fact that Jesus made no mention of homosexuality, though the fact that he refers to a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife in the same passage as he prohibits divorce with a reference back to Genesis leads some to suggest that the biblical or says that the marriage of one man to one woman is a creation ordinance, right? But Jesus here is answering a specific question about divorce. Yeah. <laughs> so that that whatever that but was intended to to, to correct, it, it really hasn't answered the argument. Here he goes. The trouble is that there is no such thing as a fixed biblical view of marriage, except that Jesus just gave us one. <laughs> Um, we know we know the bible countenances men having quite a few wives solomon we are told had 700 he had seven actually yeah yeah so the he had 1000 total 300 concubines 7000 whatever so the witness is mixed to say the least the number of marriages in the bible which can be held up as examples of what we'd understand to be a good marriage is surprisingly few i mean this that that wins the happy gilmore uh reward for 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 incoherent speech gotta correct you there matt it's billy madison is it yeah (laughs) oh man i I gotta go fix my twitter then i got i I, I, one or the other but man that's that no uh, not one or the other billy madison (laughs) yes that was the worst and may god have mercy on your soul that was the uh this way this is I think I think my junior youth group people in my church know yeah. that know that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the narratives present uh, people as they are sinners. Yeah. Um, they're not a, they're, so we don't we don't look back at at Noah and say everything he did is right, or Abraham. Oh look, he told Pharaoh that his wife visits his sister, so that must be biblical values. N- n- Nobody thinks that. Nobody has ever thought that. This is, and I'm sure the bishop knows this. This is where it's just a fundamentally dishonest, um, a dishonest statement. Or okay, either it's it's fundamentally dishonest, or the bishop does not know how to think his way out of a paper bag. Because we're not talking fundamentally about good marriages. We're talking about <laughs> what is marriage. That's right. That's right. Well, I think, and I think this is the final end. You know, I've been reading this, as I mentioned, the past couple of weeks, the, um, this book by Cardinal Sarah. Um, and he mentions at the very, very end, which I finally got into, something called the, the danger of our time is what he calls fluid atheism. And he says it's not sort of the sort of robust kind of Sartre, Nietzsche, Nietzschean a- atheism that kind of just rails at the whole concept. It's the one that just subtly starts overtaking you by a succession of cynical decisions or compromises that um, that you know are wrong, but you don't think in 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 the in the aggregate they would come to be an atheistic position, but in the in the specifics they might be something like you know. Um, just deciding not to speak up about a disagreement you may have, or maybe uh, letting a, a former conviction you have soften a little bit. And and it was really quite telling at the end because I was I was listening and reading this book while we were considering this this bishop, and I don't think he ended up. I mean, he says by his own admission that he was he thought he was going to end up where he has ended up, and yet he's admitted as much to say that he you know he he says that he wasn't moving as fast as those around him on this question, but now he has finally come come out. I mean, you know, pun not intended, but nevertheless. And I and I could help but have just a little bit of pathos for him, even though I have a lot more sort of contempt for him, given the fact that he's he's leading people astray. But I did feel uh, when he was talking about this this um, 
this this liquid atheism that I was I was redoubled in my conviction. Um, you know, like the Solzhenitsyn, or at least Bar Dreyer picks up Solzhenitsyn. You know, live not by lies. Like like that that you begin these compromises um, on small things that ultimately you find yourself as a bishop of Worcester and has abdicated his entire sort of responsibility that at one point he probably couldn't have imagined. And so I think that's just a it was a it was a little bit of a a challenge to me and it was a it was a um it was convicting to a certain degree because you know i've seen there are a variety of you know choose your own adventure type paths that the rest of our lives and ministry could go and god forbid that i end up 20 years from now saying writing some sort of letter like this or some sort of um public confession from the struggle session with the p prime ministers whatever <laughs> and so i i, I don't know I, I don't know what i'm saying about that other than I think that we're what we're doing here, what we're trying to hold each other accountable for, what we're doing by articulating this, by we're sort of wrestling through this is is probably, if not a, but only the the way to avoid that. You know, is that we we're we're trying to to wrestle through the doubts, can, trying to confront the objections, and as you say every week, Nick, by God's grace, we will be standing firm, and and I think that's. Um, you know, we saw another one fall. I mean, this is another bishop that has fallen, and we're probably shortly going to see an entire province um, or whatever they call themselves fall, and we're going to find ourselves in an increasingly um, isolated place. And I think, um, you know, I'm grateful again, grateful for you all, but also grateful for those who who are not going to bow the knee and um, look forward to seeing what's going to happen on the other side of of this um, seemingly inevitable split. Yeah. Let us all be Russian hockey players rather than English, rather than English bishops. <laughs> well, don't forget before we leave. You know we have uh, Anglicans uh, uh, Sunday for Life is this Sunday, so they'll be praying for our bishops and the Archbishop, who I think are going to be marching to the March for Life. I don't know if is that this Sunday. Is this is this coming weekend? I know and there's all sorts of um, wonderful uh, things about it, but again, it just reminded me on an upside that um, not all bishops have decided to get with the program of of Baal <laughs> and, um, and Molech. And we're grateful to, we'll be watching. I'm always very heartened by uh, seeing those sort of the the, the purple robed, uh, you know, uh, warriors out there in front leading the people um, in such a decidedly countercultural and Christian witness uh, to the world in that March for Life. Amen. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Stand Firm podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, as J.D. said, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.